0: Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. appreciate uh, Gail and her husband Peter coming out to spend the morning with us today, and uh, being here to represent uh, this this mission. Which we've been uh, involved in for how many years now? Do you think? What do you think, Mary? How many? you were involved involved for five years. It's probably been five years since you've been involved, and before that, so it's got to be—it's got to be fifteen. yeah it's right they used quote unquote real shoe boxes yeah 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 which is uh yeah which is quite a lo- uh you know a fairly long time and so um it's good and and we tend to think of it as uh, an annual kind of thing uh but uh as uh, gail pointed out it's not really uh annual for people that are uh praying and uh serving and whatnot so we uh We really appreciate that uh, and the work that's done, and the opportunity, what a great opportunity it is. Um, So thank you for that. Doug and Glenda are here this morning, and and if uh, everything goes according to plan, you want to see them personally again for several months, they're going to be heading out this week, correct? (coughs) Hallelujah. Yep. He's a little too happy about that, isn't he? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Glenn is just a little more apprehensive. That's all. Boy, did you see the news? Uh, Ottawa and uh, Gatineau and Hull. There wasn't that something. Uh, um, fortunately, there was no no loss of life, which was uh, which was tremendous. So, so uh, thank you to all of you who've been uh, rolled out of bed this morning and came to sing and to pray and to learn and and to grow and. You know, I know sometimes we suffer through the announcements and some of the promo and so on, but it's really good to know that there's a lot going on, and it's all significant. It's all meaningful. It's you know whether we're talking about the uh, you know the, the shoebox campaign or the fall festival or or uh, you know a, a woman's event or whatever. it's just uh, it's just tremendous what all we have opportunity to participate in. So so this time of the service is, is um, a time when we open Scripture together. I would encourage you to do that this morning as we uh, read and as, we, as I have opportunity to share with you some thoughts from, from Scripture. We're going through the Bible. We started uh, three, four weeks ago, maybe something like that, the first uh, Sunday in September, whatever that was, uh, with the book of Genesis. And we're, we're going through over a period of three years. We're following along with the uh Curriculum, the Gospel Project curriculum, which our kids use, our te- leaders use in our children's program. Uh, many of our groups, uh, which we strongly encourage our groups to consider going through uh, with the group curriculum, and uh, and now they have a devotional track for youth and adults to go with that, which is uh, which is really tremendous as well. And so, uh, last week we were in Genesis three, and we were thinking about uh, the effects of sin um, i was telling our group uh, last Tuesday night that i remember hearing a sermon years ago by someone and they don't know who it was uh and they were preaching on the life of Samson and their outline i remember it was god uh, the outline was sin blinds sin binds and sin grinds and if you know the story of Samson you know how how profound uh, that is uh in outlining some of the effects of sin on our lives. And, of course, we don't always like to think about the fact that we, are, that we sin or that we are sinful. We sometimes don't like to, to talk about it because it feels like such a negative thing to say. And yet, as we hopefully learned a little bit last week in our studies, uh, it's absolutely critical to understand and to uh, see, not only to see our sin, but to see ourselves as sinful. And there, there is a distinction between those two things. We don't just become sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And that's the theology of Genesis 3, the fall, we call the, the, the fall of man. And um, so we have these foundational events in Genesis 1, 2, 3, and following. And then uh, we have the fallout from all those events um, throughout the pages of uh, Scripture. Uh, sin is not just, it's not only personal, it also permeates our society. When you look around and when you watch the news, you don't need to watch the news <laughs> to, see, to see sin. I mean, it's, it's, you can look in the mirror. Or you can look at the person beside you. Go ahead, look at the person beside you. (laughs) Say, you're a sinner. No, don't do that. (laughs) But it's true. (laughs) Remember, for every finger you point, there's three pointing back at you. Remember that. Um, So uh, Mark Buchanan, I've read this quote before. I I think it's a really good statement. I'm going to read it again this this morning. He says, sin is the enemy of our soul, but sin also infuses the broad texture of our whole lives. There is a systemic, endemic, structural reality to sin. Sin is not simply the sum of its parts, the result of simple arithmetic that says one sinner plus one sinner plus one sinner equals three sinners. There is an exponential factor at play. Sin inhabits the ground on which we gather. Sin is the leaven in our life together, working its way into everything. We're not just better together, we're also worse. And the gospel of Jesus is the remedy for it all. I love that statement. I think it's very true and very significant. And that reference to sin being as leaven. Those of you who know anything at all about baking bread, uh, or anything uh, baking anything as far as that goes, you not know, understand how leaven works, and uh, Scripture actually uses that analogy uh, more than once in reference to this thing that we call sin, and um, and then of course in chapter uh, three of Genesis we have that some of the some of the foundational teachings of Scripture with regard to the effects of the whole mentioned last week the whole shame blame complex how uh, how shame is such an integral part of the experience of sin in our lives, and then how we tend to respond by looking for someone or something else to blame rather than uh, acknowledging and confessing before the Lord that, that that really we don't need to point the finger at anybody else and that we are culpable and that we need to take responsibility. We need to own that. And there's freedom in owning that because it's only as we see our sin and own our sin that we then can go to God and, and, and experience His grace and His forgiveness and His mercy. This is a really important biblical principle. The Bible says that if we cover our sin, there's no forgiveness for our sin. You know, think about it. God can forgive any sin. There's, not, there's no sin that God cannot forgive. There's no sin too great or too horrible, too awful. He can't forgive. But God does not forgive any sin unless that sin is, is brought, uh, opened, confessed before him. Uh, if we try to deny it, then that's we miss out. We're the ones that, that miss out. So and then we have the story of Cain and Abel in chapter four, and we didn't get to look at that much, but um, but it's sort of uh, there in the narrative as uh, God's uh, description of where this all leads. And I'm sure you're all familiar with this, the account of Cain and Abel and and. Uh, I think it's significant where it's placed in the narrative. Um, as opposed to the doctrine of personal sin, popular culture, popular psychology and sociology takes a totally different approach and has a different belief. The uh, If you're not aware of it, the common understanding amongst uh, authorities, I will call them, within our culture is that we are all born good, and we're good, and it's only society that corrupts us. So we're good, and the world makes us bad. Um, You know, I, I, I trust this morning that you can look at that and go, hold it a minute, that doesn't really make sense. Because all society is, really, is just a whole bunch of people. And if all of those people are good, then society will be good. I think that it's just simply a sinful attempt to put the blame on someone or something outside of ourselves. That's all it really is. And, of course, that's what Adam and Eve did. Um, Eve blamed the serpent. Adam blamed Eve. Eve. And then he blamed God, and uh, and we've been playing the shame and, and blame game ever since. So, let's see. Um, and then it goes to Cain and Abel, right? And uh, that's what Cain did. Cain looked at the situation, knew he had a problem, and decided that the problem was Adam, or was um, C- Abel so he eliminated him, killed him. Now, perhaps you've never killed anybody. Perhaps I have never killed anybody physically. But how many times in my life have I gone on the attack? I don't think I could count them. So... It's not a popular subject, but it is absolutely critical. It couldn't get any more foundational. William Beveridge said, I cannot pray except I sin. I cannot preach except I sin. My very repentance needs to be repented of. And the tears I shed need washing in the blood of Christ. Now you may hear that and you may think that that sounds extreme. Like, is it really? Is it really that bad? I mean, come on, really? Is it really that bad? Well, you see, all of this is contingent upon us seeing our sin and seeing ourselves as sinners. It it it's all it all be, depends on that. John Bunyan, who wrote *The Pilgrim's Progress*, and It's pretty hard to argue against somebody that could write a book like that. If you've ever read *The Pilgrim's Progress*, it's probably got more theology in it than any book apart from the Bible itself. It's it's an amazing, amazing account, uh, uh, extended uh, expanded parable of life. And yet, John Bunyan Bunyan said the best prayer I ever prayed had enough sin in it to damn the whole world. And again, you say that might sound extreme, but it's um, it's vital. I would say this, that your and my capacity to forgive others will depend in large part upon our willingness, or our ability, or, or better maybe our willingness, to see our own sin and our own selves as sinful or just as sinful. Just as sinful as anybody else. Any other approach to life, leaves us pointing our finger at other people and saying things like this. Well, I might be bad, but I'm not as bad as them. See, that's what we do when we we fail to really recognize what it means when the Bible says that we are all sinners. And we went to Romans 5, and I mean, you know, Ch- Genesis chapter 3 lays the foundation but as you go through scripture it's unpacked and you can you can read it and you can study it and you can allow uh, the Holy Spirit of God to convict you personally of your sin and what a blessing that will be as we learn to allow God to show us our sin for what it is so that we can then go to him and say Lord I am a sinful person I need your forgiveness and your cleansing in my life And I will tell you this, uh, there is nothing that has more power, not only to transform your life, but to transform your relationships than that. Nothing. Because that's the problem we run into over and over again in our relationships, is we, it's the things that we do to one another or we perceive that people are doing to us. And their motives and their intentions and, and their faults and their failures, what do you do with all that stuff? What do, you, what do you do when somebody hurts you, when somebody offends you? Oh, maybe they didn't even mean it, but it's still, it's still there. And, 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 and you, what do you do with it? What do you do with sin? The world denies that sin really exists. That's the world's attempt. And yet that's not getting anybody anywhere. I I had the privilege of speaking uh, to a group of men yesterday and one of the things that I felt led to say to them was that in our lives, we're either forgiving a person or we're judging them. It's one or the other. And I believe that and I believe it's true. Uh, I want to read one more quote and we're still reviewing here, but it's such an important subject. And you're not going to understand the... the, um, content today of the flood of Noah, unless you understand this. The flood of Noah will make no sense to you. You won't be able to accept it. Because it's all contingent upon what we're talking about in Genesis chapter 3. But uh, this quote, remember, you may have heard the story, because I've told it several times, it's one of my favorite stories, about the British paper that was uh, inviting uh, different authorities to write in and, and give their philosophical view on what the problem's problem was with the world? Do you remember? You, many of you have heard that story, but uh, it's it's a true account, as near as I can gather, uh, and different, you know, authors and philosophers and politicians were all writing into the paper, giving these long, wonderful explanations of what was wrong with the world, and G.K. Chesterton, a man who uh, was uh, uh, not only very brilliant, but also extremely witty, wrote in, and his response was, Uh, Dear gentlemen, in in regard to the question that you have invited us to to speak to, what is wrong with the world? I am, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. And he wasn't joking. He said this. He said, no man is really any good until he knows how bad he is or might be until he has realized exactly how much right he has to all this snobbery and sneering and talking about criminals as if they were apes in the forest 10,000 miles away, until he has squeezed out of his soul the last drop of the oil of the Pharisees until his only hope is somehow or other to have captured one criminal and kept him safe underneath his own hat. And the only way to do that, of course, is through the grace of Jesus Christ, the grace and power of Christ. So some of those thoughts are thoughts in review, but it's so, so important. Today we're we're looking at the flood narrative, and it covers several chapters, four chapters exactly actually. Um, and we're going to be uh, reading uh, chapter six and some of chapter seven, and that's uh, that's uh, as much as we're going to read together today. But I encourage you to read uh, uh, in your personal uh, studies or group work uh, much more than that. But we're going to read together at this time Genesis six. Uh, in in 22 verses there, and then uh, the last part of chapter seven, and then I have some. Offer, I want to offer some some comments on that material, and uh, and we're going to need to motor. Pray with me, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time we could spend together today. Thank you for everything that we've enjoyed even up until now. Um, Lord, just being here, being here together, and having um, you present with us, we thank you that you are pleased to uh, to be here. Not just with us and in us, but in our midst as our Savior and our Lord, because we gather in your name, Jesus, and we give you all the praise and glory. Please bless your word to our hearts today, and may it accomplish in us and for us what you want to do in our lives, uh, both personally and corporately, and uh, through us, Lord, in the lives of other people and in this Fallen world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, reading Genesis 6. Excuse me. When man began to multiply on the earth, or the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attracted as they took, and they took their wives. Uh, as otherwise any they chose. And and then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a 120 years. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted. These are, these are terrifying words when you read them. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Verse 8 says, but Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And the Lord said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. It's breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark. Finish it to a cubit above. and Set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life is under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, and I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground, according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you, come to you, to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this, he did all that God commanded And then in chapter 7, we're going to jump down to verse 11 and then read the rest of the chapter from there. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, or on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, how many people is that? Eight. And they, uh, they and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah two in two of all flesh in which there uh, was the breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed upon uh, above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens they were blotted out from the earth only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on earth 150 days there's more as I say you can read uh, chapters eight and 9 but that's enough for us to consider uh, this morning I'm sure I want to share uh, just briefly with you on three three things about this part of the biblical narrative Um, I think we're probably all aware, I'm quite sure we're all aware, how incredulous people are when it comes to the account of creation and the temptation in the garden which precipitated the fall. And then you have the story of Noah and the ark. Now, I doubt there are many accounts in Scripture that are more uh, scoffed at or ridiculed than the story of Noah and the ark. Uh, Maybe, perhaps, Jonah and the whale or Jonah and the great fish, as we're told, uh, possibly. Or maybe the resurrection of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Perhaps those accounts may be even more ridiculed or as ridiculed as the story of Noah and the ark. But either way, this account here um, is close to the top of the things that people find too incredible to believe. Right? Right? And you have to agree, it's pretty incredible, isn't it? Pretty incredible. And I would say that if you don't believe in miracles, then I'm pretty sure you're not going to believe the account of Noah and the ark. Um, for, For one thing, who shut the door? God shut the door and some big wave come up or a wind blowing or whatever God shut the door of the ark that's what that's what it says it says God shut them in um, so I want to make a few points this morning this is a big subject and and uh, yeah there's just, just there's so many things we could could consider we could think about but but uh, with regard to the uh, uh, <laughs> incredulous nature of this account uh, just just a, a few points One is to say, uh, because this scandalizes our minds, okay? It scandalizes our minds to think that this could even happen. Um, However, there is far more evidence to support the historicity of a catastrophic global flood than most people are aware of or are willing to admit. I'm not going to go into them all, but just a few things that you may have considered in the past or maybe you're not aware of. One is is that uh, all over the world, in almost all of the cultures of the world, there are legends of a global flood. And the details of which uh, differ in many ways from the account in Genesis, but in a lot of ways they're similar too. And one has to ask themselves, where do these legends come from and why the similarities? And uh, uh, that is not proof of a global flood, but it is indicative and it is evidence. I, again, this is such a huge subject, and I'm no expert on it, but but I do have this um, little slide that I put up, uh, put together that uh, Don's going to put up for us that shows the Chinese pictographic characters for the two words boat and flood. So I don't speak Chinese so I'm going by faith here. But according to my uh, understanding these characters on the top uh, um, three characters to the right make up the word boat on the left. And those three characters are the character for vessel eight, and mouth which is a a, moth would be a metonym for person. So you could say that the characters in, Ch- in the Chinese language, which is, everybody agrees is, is totally ancient, you have the word boat consisting of th- the three words, vessel, ape, people. Interesting, right. eh? And then the word flood in Chinese is made up uh, of these characters, that I can hardly even see. Uh, wa- help me out here, is it Water? Yeah, my. I apologize for my uh, the uh, resolution on this. I uh, uh, land together, Earth total. Okay, water total. Thank you, Don. Together, Earth and eight. Like, why? How do you explain that? you know? You can by the way, you can go online, and you can research this more because these are not the only words in Chinese in the Chinese language that point to the early chapters of Genesis. There's others as well, which is what I find very, very fascinating, fascinating. Anyways, moving on. Um, the Hebrew words, Um, translated in chapter 7, verse 11, which we read, the fountains of the great deep were broken up. What does that mean? Well, obviously, uh, from the the, the wording, one would understand that there were enormous amounts of subterranean water, which would have had to been under high pressure and and probably either hot, uh, probably hot, uh, that would have... uh, been exploded and uh, we're talking volcanic eruptions we're talking tsunamis and those things would be just for starters in chapter 7 verse 11 it says the the windows of heaven were open which is a very pictorial way of saying that it started to rain like crazy and one of the interesting things about that is is that prior to the flood uh we're, we're, our understanding is that god it didn't rain like that okay this was something new. This was something new, and, um, and so you may, if you go back to chapter one, verses uh, six through eight, you may recall that when God first created the earth, He created uh, the heavens, and He put uh, what He calls the uh, the scriptures call the the expanse between the waters and the waters, and uh, uh, creation scientists refer to that as a, a water canopy. We don't know, I mean, we're speculating, right? But, the, but, but chapter 1 of Genesis indicates that there was this huge, huge water canopy in the sky. And it would appear that when it says the windows of heaven were opened, that that's the windows that God was talking about. So you have underground massive reserves of water under pressure, and then you have this huge water canopy surrounding the earth, and, and simultaneously, just as uh, it's beginning to rain, or even prior to, this, this rain like the earth has never seen uh, before or since, right? You have the, uh, the um, fountains of the great deep. And uh, so prior to this, we believe, we understand, that there would have been some type of uh, well, again, creation scientists refer to this as the greenhouse effect. If you have a large water canopy uh, in the sky, you have all kinds of filtering going on. So filtering of harmful sun rays and stuff like that. And uh, and you would have a very uh, uh, moderate, consistent, temperate climate, which would be very conducive to, let's say, mm, let's call it a tropical paradise. Uh, I believe that when God created the earth, I believe it was just absolutely You ever been to Victoria Park? Picture Victoria Park all over the world. You know, that's what I picture. And again, I'm no scientist, but I know what I read and 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 I can picture in my mind what it might have been like before the flood. What was it like during the flood? It was not just like, it didn't just rain for 40 days and 40 nights. It was like rain like the world has never seen before or since. And at the same time, you have all this subterranean activity going on. You have huge eruptions, volcanic eruptions. Now, um, so the world that Noah experienced when he stepped off of that ark would have been drastically different than the world he lived in when he stepped on that ark, right? Right? And so, and yet, contemporary science—one of the things that contemporary uh, secular science does—is it bases all of its theorizing on uh, the, the theory of uniformitarianism, which basically is the doctrine that what the way things are now is the way they've always been. There's been they they allow for no catastrophic events in their in their doctrine or their or their understanding, and and yet um, uh, these types of things have uh, changed. Uh, the change that, that would have been affected and would have been impacted by, by these things. Uh, the topography uh, the, would have been completely changed. And in relation to that, we have the fossil record. Um, I love talking and studying about the fossil record. I absolutely love it because it, 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 if, if perceived by an open mind, the fossil record has way more support, evidential support, for a global flood than it does for any secular theory. Hands down, no comparison. For one thing, uh, in the fossil record, we have fossils of sea creatures all over the world on the top of mountain ranges. How do you explain that in any other way than what we read about in Scripture. It's spectacular to think, to think about it. And I think these, these things can blow your mind, if, and they do. And, but, but, but just forget about that for just a moment and think, consider this, the fact that the fossil record even exists. How is a fossil made? You know, if, you're, if, you're, if your dog, I'm sorry, I shouldn't use that illustration. Um, if your cat wanders off in your neighbor's yard and your neighbor's dog decides to have your cat for playtime and your cat dies and he goes off and crawls under a bush somewhere he does not turn into a fossil dead things do not fossilize unless they're buried right away if they lay around for any length of time they don't fossilize. They don't turn into a fossil. The only way you can get a fossil is if you have rapid burial. When you consider that in light of the millions upon millions upon millions of massive graveyards of fossils we find all over the earth, everywhere, there's no place on this planet where you do not find these massive burial grounds of fossils. How do you explain that? Well, Genesis explains it, explains it really well. In fact, when you look at the pictures, if you just look at the pictures with an open mind, it looks exactly like what Genesis describes as the flood of Noah. And again, I'm not suggesting that this proves the flood. I'm just saying that there's a whole lot of what could be called scientific evidence if you have an open mind. If you don't start with a preconceived conclusion that there is no God and the only things that are possible are the things that you can see, feel, hear, touch, and taste. Uh, but anyways, that's uh, we could easily uh, easily bog bog down. What about the ark itself? It's interesting. It says uh, translating Cupids into. Um, in a feet it was 450 feet long 75 feet wide and 45 feet high which is 1,518,750 cubic feet which is comparable they say to uh, about 569 modern railway uh, railroad box cars and if you consider that when the bible when uh, god speaks to noah he doesn't tell him to take Two of every cow, two of every dog, two of every cat. You take, take two of every species according to its kind. So all the dogs on the planet are the same kind, right? And we know, we know we understand biologically that all dogs share a common ancestry, right? And uh, uh, just as all people do. And that's a scientific statement as well. Uh, but, so the, but the point is that they, that it, when you consider even all the uh, all of that, that there would have been uh, more than sufficient room on the ark for all the animals with all the food needed for all the animals, and there would have even been room to spare. Then there's the seaworthiness of the craft. And again, I, I, I love this stuff. I don't know if it does anything for you. I, I love it. They've done all the wave tank tests and everything, and they've determined that the ark was designed... Uh, Almost virtually perfectly to withstand uh, incredible uh, uh, tumultuous uh, waves without capsizing. They've done tests and they've determined that the the design was uh, was able to uh, to uh, withstand waves of up to two hundred feet, and that the ark would have rotated ninety degrees and still uprighted itself. Pretty good for primitive cave people like Noah. Um, anyways, now, the, these, are, these are some facts, and as I say, they're not mere speculation. They, these are some facts. But you know what? There's even something that's even more significant uh, for you and I here this morning, and that is the fact that Jesus himself referred to these events as factual. Now, all these other things, I you know, they, they, they carry weight with me, but this clinches it for me right here. Jesus himself not only referred to these things as factual, and it, I can't believe it. I just looked down and seen this clock. It's 1202. Who, somebody needs to fix that. Hmm. I don't know how I'm going to do this now. All right, let me read this passage. Matthew 24, Don's got it up there. Uh, not only does he refer to it as factual, but he connects it to his second coming which is something else that people tend to scoff at and mock. Jesus said, but concerning that day, talking about his return, concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So it will be at the coming of oh, the Son of Man. I'm going to try my best here to to pull um, to pull some things out here and, and try not to keep you here too awful long. Uh, Because we do have that meeting we need to get to. It scandalizes our mind. The second thing is it scandalizes our hearts. When we think about and consider this, uh, the, the, the revelation that God is good and that this good God would wipe out an entire civilization from the face of the earth. That not only scandalizes our minds, that scandalizes our hearts. And, uh, and we could just skip this part. We could just skip it. We could take a selective approach to Scripture, which is very tempting. In fact, there is a, 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 a movement. and It's not an organized movement. It's a completely unorganized movement within contemporary Christian culture to do just that. To ignore or to downplay or to deny even these aspects of God's character as He reveals Himself to us in Scripture, and to approach the Bible topically and to only pick those parts that uh, don't offend our our sensibilities and our modern decorum of what we think a good God should be like, or how He should. Behave, because we really want our God to behave. So what do you think? Should we take a selective approach to Scripture? Uh, Don, Psalm 11.10, first part there says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In Psalm 103, verse 17, the first part says, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. You see, we have trouble. We, we really, really struggle to reconcile the goodness of God with the judgment of I thought about this a lot in the past week, and I here's what I what I think. I think that it, it's probably a good thing to have this come right up at the front end and establish it early on in our biblical theology. Um, the principal purpose of which is to reveal God to us. The principal purpose of Scripture is to reveal God to us. And God reveals himself. And we need to know God as he has revealed himself and not as we think he should be or how we want to shape him to be. And in Scripture, there is no question but what God is good but that his judgment is no, in no way inconsistent with his goodness. It's probably a good thing that God deals with this right up the front end. So we can wrestle with it, and we can struggle with it, and we can make a decision whether we're going to believe God in a God as in God as He reveals Himself to us, or whether we're going to manufacture a God according to our own wishes and desires and our own sensitivities and sensibilities, God doesn't wait until He's drawn us into the narrative, you know, like Numbers chapter 27 somewhere or something like that before He kind of springs on us. Oh, by the way. I judge sin. He puts it right up at the front end and, and he says, this is how it is, folks. God, because God is not subversive. God is, is not like that. And, it, you know, it comes kind of comes down to this, that we either allow God to judge us or we become his judge. It really, really comes down to that. That's your choice. You can either allow God to be your judge or you can judge him as unacceptable for who he is and how he is. And that is why the point about us being sinners needs to be belabored. Because a big part of why we struggle to understand and accept the kind of judgment that this kind of judgment exists and is real is that we don't really understand sin. And we don't see sin the way God sees sin. And, of course, along the way, we don't have a very robust understanding of what it means to be good. We don't think of justice as good. And yet, for a a moment even, can you imagine a world without justice? Can you imagine a world where there are no repercussions or consequences or punishment of any kind for any bad behavior, no reward for any good behavior? How many of you have read Lord of the Flies by William Goldwyn? Goldwyn? Is it? Goldwyn? Goldwyn, yeah. It used to be required reading. Uh, homeschoolers, do you get, make it? Yeah. It still, still requires schooling at the Slater House, um, at the Stock Deck House. Um, if you, at the Whites? No, no, no. Oh, at the Murphys. It's no, no, no. school? No, no, no. It's still required reading? No, no, no. Okay, I'm glad to hear that. I hope it continues. Uh, if you haven't read Lord of the Flies, you might want to pick up a copy and read it. Because the author William Goldman was making a statement about some of these things we're talking about here this morning, it's a good idea. Um, but but take something less threatening than murder and mayhem. Take something less threatening. How many of you have ever heard this? This you know uh, when you talk we talk about 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 sin. How many of you have ever heard this? But I'm not hurting anybody. Maybe you've not only heard it, maybe it's come across your lips. I'm sure it probably has at some point in your life. But um, but what if you're hurting yourself? Or what if you are offending the one who made you and whose you are? What about that? Just some things to think about, really. Um, I, I'm, I apologize for... Overestimating the time uh, that I would it would take me to go through here, so I'm just going to move on to my third point. I'm going to try to make this quick. I'm not going to use most of those passages, Don. Um, in fact, I'm probably not going to get you to. I might get you to put one up. I'm not sure, but uh, um, the, well, you got to put this one up. Put the Peter one up. Second uh, Peter three, if you would. Um, okay. I could just say. Amen and let you go. Um, But you probably know that's not going to happen. So it scandalizes our minds and it scandalizes our hearts. But here's the thing we often miss. When we allow our minds to be scandalized and our hearts to be scandalized, we miss the most important part and the most important thing about this whole narrative. And that is this, that even in the midst of God's judgment, Out of his great love and mercy, he provides a way and makes provision for us to escape judgment. And that provision is that we can hide in him. And this is the part about the ark that people don't get. That the ark is a picture of Jesus Christ. Said, I am the door. Uh, let's just. I was going to talk about the God suffering long, and you know, we were in the book of Revelation, and people say, you know, why is it taking? Why is it taking so long? Why, you know, God is, you know, mocked the second coming slower than the second coming of Christ. Why is it taking so long for Jesus to come? Maybe He's not even going to come. I mean, it's been thousands and thousands of years, and Peter addresses that, and look what he's. Said, <laughs> look, you're, you're mean. Look, it says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved in both of them. I'm st- stirring up your co- sincere mind by way of, my, of a reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through our apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, All things are continuing as they were from the very beginning. Peter says, which means that they're ignorant of this, Uh, they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water through water by the word of God and that by means of these the world that, that existed was deluged, that means flooded, with water and perished. And then he goes on to say, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly, and then he says in verse eight, "But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years as a thousand years is as one day, and verse nine, which I love, says, "The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some counsel us, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." From the time that Noah, God called Noah to build that ark to the time that he sent those waters on the earth. We don't know how long it was. Some speculate or some conclude from the scriptural record that it was 120 years. Other people say, no, it wouldn't have been 120 years uh, when you do the math. But it was, uh, it was probably most of that. And you know, it doesn't matter if it was 120 years or 100 years. The point is that God was all that time waiting. And Peter calls Noah a, a, a preacher of righteousness. And then the point is that, the, that the, the apostle is making here, and, and I was going to go to Exodus chapter 33 and 34, where God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock, which is another picture of Jesus. And because Moses says, I, I, you know, God, show me your glory. God, show me your glory. And, and God, uh, Moses says that to God, and God says, that ain't going to happen because you'd be dead but I will show you my back and I'll pass by and I'll hide you in this cleft of the rock here and I'll put my hand over and cover you so that you don't perish and I'll show you, I'll uh, give you a little glimpse of my glory and then it says there, it talks about the Lord passed by and he says, the Lord, the Lord, uh, 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 and then he talks about how great his, his compassion is and how uh, uh, long-suffering he is. And slow to anger. And that phrase, slow to anger, comes up over and over and over again in Scripture. All through the Old Testament. Jonah, remember? Jonah, when uh, he was upset because God forgave the uh, Ninevites because they repented. He preached judgment. And, and, and then when they repented, and God said, okay, that's wonderful. I'm not going to judge them. No, I got mad. And, uh, and that's the Scripture he quoted. Exodus chapter uh, 33 and 34. He says, I knew it, God. I knew you were merciful and slow to anger. Yeah. Anyways, the point is that God is merciful even as he is just. And you might not want a just God As the old saying go, when it's it's our sin, we want God to be merciful. When somebody else's sin, we want God to be just. Something like that. Uh, Just that last scripture, Don, if you would. This is from Psalm 2, and we're going to close with this. It's 17 minutes after. I had a really good ending here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. another day psalm 2 now therefore O kings be wise be warned o rulers of the earth serve the lord with fear and rejoice with trembling kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled blessed are all who take refuge in him look at that last statement blessed are all who take refuge in him that's the cross, you see. When you read this the account of, of Noah and Eric, you've got to read it in the shadow of the cross. God has provided a way so that you and I, every one of us, sinners though we are, can take refuge in him and be uh, saved from from the wrath that is to come. Um Let me, uh, let me close with the, these words. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. May the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be for sin a double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. Another old hymn. A wonderful savior, Jesus, my Lord, a wonderful Savior to me. He hideth my soul in the depths of his love. He hideth my soul in the depths of his love. And then the last part says he covers me there with his hand. I'm going to ask you to stand and So in a moment, I'm just going to pray, and um, if you're uh, making your way home at this time, um, we uh, thank you for for coming and joining and being with us this morning, and um, you're certainly welcome to stay for the meeting, as was mentioned, Um, but uh, drive careful, have a glorious afternoon, and spend a little time today thinking about how God reveals himself in Scripture. Not how you think he should be or how you would create God, but how he is and how he has made you for his glory and how he loves you and how he's done everything at great personal cost to himself to save you from your sin. Lord, I thank you for this time. For these words uh, that we've read, these passages that we've considered this morning. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, enable us to humble ourselves before you, to see you for who you are and what you're like. And we thank you, God, for your justice, because we can't imagine a world without justice. But at the same time, Lord, it does, it does terrify us when we read of your, your wrath, your glory, your anger against sin. But we thank you and praise you, God, that you sent your son Jesus and that we can be hidden in, in him and in Him we can be find a refuge for our souls that will shield us. Thank you for taking the wrath of Almighty God upon Yourself, Lord Jesus, and suffering for us, so that we can be forgiven. Lord, may we worship You in gratitude all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.